Welcome to episode 55 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, here together with my colleague Richard Gray, and we're at the RiskMinds International Conference in Amsterdam. I think this is the largest gathering of CROs in the world, and we're privileged to be joined by two of the leading CROs speaking at this event. And indeed, befitting the global scope of this event, we have an all-Southern Hemisphere group today. Our countryman Peter Deans, recently retired as Chief Risk Officer at Bank of Queensland, and now doing private sector consulting, as well as being on the board of Australia's RegTech Association. And Jaka Grobler is the Chief Risk Officer at First Rand, and probably has much happier thoughts on the recent Rugby World Cup than the other three of us. Peter and Yako, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thanks, Brad. We did an episode at this conference last year, episode 19, when we discussed digital risk with Marcus Kromick of Commerce Bank and Harold Massonero of VCP in Peru. And at the risk of overdoing my linkages to previous episodes, Peter is now our third return guest on FRT. He joined us at Bali during the IAF annual membership meeting last year on episode 11, together with Namura's Yuji Nakata. Peter, can we start with life after banking? What have you been doing since your retirement from Bank of Queensland? And what's your current focus? Thanks, Brad. Nice of you to ask. Yeah, I retired as CRO in May this year, so I've had a fairly good six or seven months taking a bit of a breather, really. I think that many of the CROs listening to this would know that the role of the CRO in recent years has become quite intense. And I know it's cliched to say, but it literally is a 24-7 job. In the time I was CRO at Bank of Queensland, I was the longest serving one in the industry. So really enjoying just the time away from corporate life. As you've pointed out, I'm on the board of the RegTech Association. It's a not-for-profit and we're a very fast-growing institution with some really fantastic startups in Australia in the regulatory and compliance space. So I've been helping the CEO and the members there. And then on the business front, as you pointed out, I'm doing some private sector consulting work and my focus is very much taking you know, the really good skills that have been developed in enterprise risk management in the banking and finance sector and taking that more broadly into the corporate sector where not as well developed and I think we do often under, undervalue the skills that we have in, in the banking and finance sector. So that's my lot. It's all pretty, pretty good stuff. Yaku, just uh, in respect of the Risk Minds Conference, I'm interested in your impressions. Have there been any particular themes or content that have stood out for you so far in the conference? I think, interestingly enough, I am surprised by the tone and the severity of discussions as far as climate risk is concerned. I think we almost at a similar stage where we were three years ago when cyber was top of the agenda and getting an awful lot of attention. I think maybe the difference with climate is that it's not only top of the agenda, but I think there's a great amount of uncertainty. How does one put your arms around this and how do you actually deal with this strategically? It was quite striking, I thought, some of the comments by insurers during the event that really emphasised the translation of what a one degree or two degree impact in ocean temperatures translates in terms of major catastrophic storms and the dollars of damage that, that they're then picking up. That probably hadn't been as clear to me prior to this conference. Yeah, and I think it's, it's still early days in terms of quantifying the impact. The issue of climate risk, it's all non-linear. We don't have any data that really tell us how it's going to play out in the future. And I think there are so many other interconnected components or paradigms. For example, if you look at geopolitical risk, scarcity of resources and the socioeconomic risk around that, I think it's ill understood and it's still to play out. Yeah, I think the points around climate risk probably dominating the discussion so far here in Amsterdam is correct. I sat through the Risk Invest Day yesterday, which was the investment managers and asset managers, the risk fraternity there. I think some of the frustration that came out and certainly I share is that there is still a lot of talk about its early days. We haven't yet got our minds around this. I think the unfortunate reality is that climate change, for whatever reason, has been around for a long time. 
people forget the Kyoto Protocol was actually signed in 1997, which is a long, long time ago. And even the Paris Accord was 2015. So I think it's a little bit unsettling that the message from some sectors and I think what's been played back from some of the board discussions at larger institutions is they're getting their minds around this now. I think there probably needs to be a bit of reflection on why has it got to this late piece Hmm. when institutions are starting to sort of say, oh, we need to think about climate change risk. And even in one of the discussions yesterday, there was the, oh, we'd like some guidance from the regulators on this. I think this is probably a point of reflection for business leaders more broadly, not just the risk community. And do you think that the regulators really have lagged in their reaction so far and they're they're going to have to play some catch up? Look, I think the the regulators are playing a bit of catch up and there was a very good presentation today from PwC that just showed that in many probably more advanced jurisdictions, the regulators have actually put out some fairly detailed guidance on you know how institutions should think about climate change risk and assess the impact. But look, I think to my earlier point, so it is a little bit too little too late in some respects. And the global regulators have to think about a coordination factor, otherwise you're going to get a real divergence of outcomes in terms of taxonomy and measurement metrics, which really would be a detrimental and put us back. Yeah, that effect. yeah. I think the analogy also, the fact that climate today is where cyber was three or four years ago is true. I think climate has probably far greater implications for you know, industries and communities than perhaps cyber does. Can we pick up the, the point about metrics? And earlier in the year, Doug Peterson, the S&P CEO, joined us on episode 39 while we were in Tokyo. And he made an interesting observation that the metrics around carbon have been fairly mature. The metrics around plastics new or at the starting point. And we've heard a bit about plastics at different times in the conference. I'm not sure whether you put that under the climate bucket or whether that's it's actually more about you know contamination of food streams and, and going to have adverse social or health consequences otherwise. But do you see a similar sense of, of plastic still being kind of the frontier that's yet to be explored and developed from a metrics point of view? And also perhaps an area that investors increasingly are asking about. I haven't come across a lot of focus on plastics, but I've got no doubt it will start featuring quite prominently. Mm. I think in terms of metrics, what's also important is to be able to actually look at those second order impacts especially for a bank. If you look at your credit book as an example, what are those second and third order metrics that you need to start tracking, Yes, which is much more difficult than your own carbon footprint? I probably won't directly answer the question per se, but I think for banks in particular, perhaps insurers and asset managers, they're going to need to start to think about employing specialists in the same way if a bank's financing real estate, they have valuers on board, If they're financing agribusinesses, they have specialists in the agribusiness sector. I think it's getting to the point now where in this specific category of climate change risk, banks will need to actually employ some specialists now because it's really difficult. And I know, you know, I'm I'm just a commercial banker at heart. Some of the implications and the modelling that's now going to be needed is far beyond what a generalist banker can do. So I think that's probably one of the things that was going through my mind the last two days here is what's the skill set that's needed to start to answer some of these questions? Because to be frank, I certainly couldn't answer your plastics question and I doubt most CROs could. So I agree that climate has really been the the leading theme thus far, at least, in the conference discussions. One of the secondary themes, I think, has been around the ethical use of data and some of the implications of artificial intelligence, for instance. Yako, if we pick up data, perhaps in a broader way to start with, you made a, a couple of really interesting comments at our IIF annual membership meeting in Washington a couple of months ago, one of which was about BCBS 239. It's funny when we reflect on all of the BCBS documents, that's probably the one and only one that's actually known commonly by its number. 
but around uh, risk data, data aggregation. And I think you made the point that the compliance effort of being able to climb that 239 mountain has perhaps given a platform uh, or a basis for now being able to interrogate and utilise that data in proactive business ways. I was wondering if you can tell us a bit more about that. So I think the issue with data is that there is so much of it and it's all over and you have all sorts of different formats, different standards, different locations. And what BCBS 239 did for us is it gave us that catalyst to start harmonizing, formalizing and consolidating data. Not all data or as data, because I think the challenge to do that is too vast, but at least enable to create that, if you can call it that tent pole mm-hmm. from which you can build. So there's a huge regulatory dividend that's coming with that initiative where the BCBS program acted as a catalyst to initiate and start a number of other digital transformation initiatives. And we will also use that now going forward to further focus on risk digitization because the BCBS initiative provided the platform to do so. From a data perspective, what what I think is encouraging is the last couple of years, a lot more banks, uh, for reasons we just talked about, whether it's a regulatory push or whether it's perhaps looking across the fence at what big tech's doing and some of the more innovative fintechs are doing around data, I think the whole landscape is improving quite a bit. I think banks have got a far better understanding of both the size of the challenge they have But I think also the size of the prize, where the opportunities are, whether it is to improve the risk-weighted asset optimization within an institution, or whether it's to actually leverage off data and information they already hold, but have never really thought of as an asset. I think that's, again, quite a positive story, albeit for many banks with a myriad of legacy systems and incomplete data sets, there's still obviously challenges. In terms of the ethical use of data, one suggestion that's been put to us at the IAF board and also by a number of banks' chief data officers is that perhaps we need to have an industry code of conduct for how we use data and whether that's something that, that we as a financial industry can adopt and enshrine and then perhaps create that as the expectation for the firms that are partnering with us. In terms of how we use data and, and the expectations around its protection and the ethical use, is that something that the direction you think we should be travelling in? You're certainly on the money. AI and ethical questions or dilemmas around AI AI is very topical. I was actually at the Risk Minds event in Hong Kong about six weeks ago, and I'd say almost all of the first day was really around AI and ethical issues. The good news, again, is there's a lot of debate in the public domain now, and there was the very famous credit card issue a couple of weeks ago, the Goldman Sachs Apple one which has really brought to the fore some of these questions. And I think it's getting certainly at many boards a lot of focus now on how do we think about these types of issues as we go down the path of a lot more automation using some of these new tools and techniques, which broadly all get put into the AI bucket. The ethical question and the the whole conduct area has been a fairly topical area for banks in recent times. And in recent forums, that's conduct's been a fairly big focus. Linking those together with what you just talked about, Peter and and Yarko, are you seeing as much focus on that at risk minds in terms of the conduct side, or do you think it is not as prominent? I haven't seen it as prominent. Maybe it will become prominent over the next couple of days. Uh, However, I do believe it's really important. Banks are in the business of trust. Therefore, conduct and ethical use of data is of paramount importance for banks and the future in which it conducts itself. So yes, I believe it will continue to be a key area of focus. 
the sessions I've been involved in uh, and listened to, there's there's been still quite a big discussion around the broader question of conduct risk. And as uh, as we all know, in Australia in the last couple of weeks, there's been a major AML CTF issue arise with one of the big four banks there. My sense is that in many countries, governments, regulators, and the community have pretty well run out of patience with the banking sector. And I think any more conduct missteps, whether it's data privacy or whether it's perhaps misuse of AI as a tool, I don't think it's going to be tolerated. And I think there's clearly quite a bit of anxiety you know, around board tables at the moment for those that are across some of the issues which are popping up too frequently in many of the jurisdictions around the world. So I think it would be very foolish of people to say that conduct's probably slipping off the board and CRO agenda because, as I said, I think many regulators have run out of patience. I know the politicians in many jurisdictions have run out of patience now. Just a quick follow-up. Do you think the reputational risk that's obviously emerging for the regulated and traditional banks is in some ways mitigating people's concerns about dealing with a non-regulated sector, perhaps? Um, it's a really good question, and I'm certainly not one to defend the uh, the legacy businesses, but there have been missteps by quite a number of the new startups and fintechs as well. So I don't think conduct problems per se um, the domain just of the existing legacy businesses. But I just go back to the point I made earlier. We're moving into zero tolerance. And it's not just regulators. I I would emphasise it's politicians and the community more broadly, which makes it difficult. And one of the panellists today did actually say, and look, it may have been a bit of a throwaway line that, you know, you miss a couple of words in the terms and conditions and it costs you billions of dollars in remediation. Now, whether that's true or not, I think that's an example of where there's a high level of anxiety around operational risk and the consequential conduct, reputation, regulatory and litigation issues which flow from it. And I think it's probably holding back the sector a little bit because of this extreme anxiety about not making a mistake. To pick up a couple of things you've mentioned there, we had a panel yesterday on regulating robots, it was titled, around AI. And one of the themes there and, and in some of the discussions I, I joined afterwards was the point of how you deal with model risk where, let's say, an AI model is a source of some sort of new form of bias, the Apple scenario you mentioned. Is this sort of part of your model risk framework, but then at the same time, it's reputational risk, and it might be reputational risk where it most manifests or where the impact is most felt. Is this a new challenge in terms of how we understand the intersections of different risk types? Yeah, most definitely. We are starting to consider that in our model risk framework. I think the key challenge is to develop a framework that's appropriately fit for the application. One cannot regulate everything because it becomes impractical to do business if you regulate everything, but there certainly should be some form of guidance and standards to apply to AI and machine learning as well. I think the principles are similar to any other quantitative model that you use in the business. It is something that you rely on to make a business decision, therefore you should have a certain level of comfort around the output. And I think that's probably a good segue to a point I wanted to stress in the the panel yesterday, that the biases we're worried about with machine learning and the Apple scenario, for instance, firstly, they're not necessarily unique to machine learning, and indeed humans have biases. But also, there are cases where machine learning is actually helping to overcome existing biases. And one great example we keep citing is where a number of the Canadian banks found that their existing credit decisioning models were unable to deal with zeros in an income history, and anyone who therefore had maternity leave was naturally punished. 
whereas the machine learning model has been the one that's been able to look past that and understand that there is actually a reason for what's otherwise an omission in that income history. I think you've made a really good point. And again, I think whether it's banks themselves or perhaps regulators are starting with, as these issues come about, are starting to sort of reassess their approach to existing models because you're absolutely right that the existing credit models, you know, auto decisioning in many banks, it's got biases that have been in place for many, many years and and I suspect have never really been discussed perhaps at risk committee or board level in some institutions. And it's only really the fact that this is becoming a bit more front page news that people are starting to turn their minds to this. I think in addition to that, you also have questions about the earlier point you made about, well, is the model constraining the availability of credit because of the way it's designed? So it doesn't matter whether it's AI, machine learning, or a new generation of model or an existing credit model. It's forcing what I think is a healthy reassessment of the way that business is done, in, particularly in the credit decisioning space. Peter, to conclude, I'd like to just touch on the, the landscape in Australia for regtech and fintech. And you mentioned about the, the burgeoning industry there. I had a really interesting comment from an Australian government official recently that they're seeing a lot of great activity from those startups in Australia, but generally not partnered with the Australian banks, and that the Australian startups are often winning business, winning contracts, and forming partnerships with the likes of the UK banks, for instance, and that the Australian banks perhaps are adopting partners from elsewhere. Interested in your thoughts as to whether that's a fair assessment and perhaps any reasons to it, but also more broadly how how you see the landscape. Yeah, look, I wouldn't fully agree with the observation. Um, There has been good take up by the Australian banking sector and also insurance sector of a number of the startups. I think where they have had some success is with some of the larger global banks who have actually got quite large innovation funds. So they've been able to access funding from a significant innovation fund. I think the Australian banking sector is probably playing a little bit catch up. And as you know, um, it's probably been a bit distracted the last couple of years with the Royal Commission into financial services, which in turn is it will be a catalyst going forward because there's a lot of activities that need to now be completed, remediation and so on. And that is actually a fertile ground for some of the startups that we have as members. I think the frustration that quite a lot of the small startups have and we're putting out a publication in the next couple of weeks is just the time it takes to get through the procurement processes, the legal risk compliance sign-offs. Our members are relatively small businesses. They tend to be bootstrapped by the founders so they don't have large VC investment and to sort of wait one to two years to even get a proof of concept uh, off the ground, you know, some of them just run out of money, to be, yeah. to be honest. But look, uh, we, we are seeing good take up both in Australia and, and overseas. And um, part of our role is to, to try and push that along at a faster rate. Well, thank you, Yoko. And thank you, Peter. Thanks, Brad. If I can quickly summarise a few of the key takeaways from our discussion. Firstly, I very much agree on the emphasis on climate risk as being the really the leading theme through this conference. And I like the analogy that it's similar to where cyber was perhaps three years ago. Secondly, the, the prominence on how we use data, both effectively and efficiently, but also around using it ethically, how we ensure that we preserve trust. And I think that makes a good linkage to the, the third theme I'd call out. Peter, you, you spoke about conduct. And I agree that, that whereas perhaps in the last two years in this conference, it had kind of been conduct, conduct, conduct. And there is a, a risk or a temptation that you might say that that's diminished in its focus. But I think, as, as you pointed out, we shouldn't interpret it that way. It's rather perhaps the emergence of these new issues and that the focus of conduct is perhaps going to manifest more around how we're using data, how we're using new technologies. And that intersection of model risk and, and reputational risk, I think, is a, a big emerging theme that we'll put a lot more attention on. 
Looking ahead on FRT, we'll look at the recent BCBS report on open banking, together with that report's lead author, Linda Jeng, formerly of the Fed and now at Georgetown Law. And I know I've promised this a couple of times, but we are going to pick up on Google Cloud's Google Anthos development and some of the opportunities that perhaps presents around portability between different infrastructures. Please join us for those great discussions on all podcast apps and on the IIF website. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.